0: The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China Podcast Series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orland, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm joined today by an old friend, Mark Clifford. He is now Executive Director of of the Hong Kong-based Asia Business Council, but I've known him as a journalist par excellence over, boy, I think three decades, from your days at Business Week to being editor, I remember, of The Standard, and then of the editor-in-chief of the South China Morning Post, so a real, he lives in Hong Kong, um, and is the author of a recent book, which I just finished this weekend, called The Greening of Asia, which looks at how business is playing a role in the environment in Asia. Today, we're going to talk both about the book briefly um, and about the Paris Agreement and how the U.S.-China relationship has played a role in shaping that agreement, what it means for U.S.-China relations and what it means for the environment. But let me turn it over to uh, to Mark.
1: Well, thanks so much, Steve. It's uh, great to be here in New York and to see you again, to see the committee's uh, relatively new headquarters. I guess you moved in here last year um, and um, it's a beautiful day in New York. But uh, a, a nice chance to to talk about the book, which looks at how businesses in Asia or a handful of leading businesses are... Uh, using good business practices to, um, uh, have environmental businesses, whether it's in solar or wind or water. Um, I think leading businesses in Asia are recognizing that the growing middle class in the region um, wants something more than um, dirty air and dirty water. And uh, we're seeing this in greener buildings. We're seeing it in uh, innovative uh, city planning on the parts of governments. Uh, but we're seeing the private sector at its best. And this is, by the way, this is early days. I'm, my book looks at the green shoes. So we're seeing uh, business working with government and uh, w- working with uh, good policymakers, and being held accountable by NGOs and civil society, um, because business and civil society and government have to work together to to clean up Asia. Um, It's the most populous region of the world, of course, and uh, it's also the most polluted, and uh, that pollution is taking a real toll on people's lives. And uh, you mentioned the Paris Agreement as we move towards a an increasingly uh, less fossil fuel intensive future, less carbon intensive future, it's, uh, it's going to be incumbent on business to come up with the technology and the solutions uh, to ensure that we can still live the, the life that we aspire to. It's not a matter of how much electricity we consume or how much coal we burn. It's a matter of how comfortable we are in our homes and our offices. It's making sure that our kids have enough uh, light to be able to do their homework at night and to be able to do this in a way that's not going to destroy our planet Earth.
0: Before going to the Paris Agreement, let me just ask one question about the book and then we'll go to the Paris Agreement. The book is Pan-Asia. Obviously, it deals with Indonesia, the Philippines, India, China. What's the, be- what's the best story, since our listeners are U.S.-China relations right. folks, what's the best story about China in the book?
1: I think the best story about China is the way that the government and industry together have dramatically brought the cost down of renewable power. China has brought its manufacturing and engineering excellence to solar and wind technology in particular and made them cost competitive with the cheapest fuels, with coal, with natural gas. And that's great news for China, and it's great news for the world. Without
0: putting a price on carbon?
1: Without putting a price on carbon. How have they done it? Well, uh, as you know, uh, when Chinese uh, turn their attention to uh, an industry, let's say solar, as, uh, famously Shi Rong from, from uh, Suntech did uh, about 15 years ago, they use the manufacturing and engineering excellence that, that China's known for to just keep wringing costs out of the system. And they get higher efficiencies, they get better engineering, they get better manufacturing. It's the same story we've seen, and it's the reason why the Apple iPhones are made in China, because China's great at manufacturing. And the fact that they've done this uh, with with these two key renewable energies, solar and wind, is, I think, uh, on its way to changing the world.
0: The Paris Agreement, in my speeches, is always the bright, shiny example of U.S.-China cooperation and kind of a symbol of what we can make the world if we work together with China. Tell us where we are. Um, The President... The two presidents have just announced the sun. We will sign this on April 22nd, which is very soon. So tell us where we are and where we should expect to go.
1: Well, let me talk a little bit about where we've we've come from. It was uh, less than a year and a half ago during uh, President Obama's state visit to China that he and uh, Xi Jinping signed this landmark agreement. And uh, I won't talk about the U.S. side, but I really want to talk about the, the China side because uh, China had never before committed to any sort of peak in its carbon emissions. It had taken the attitude, uh, quite understandable, that uh, the Western countries, richer countries, had uh, burned fossil fuels as part of the process of development, and that China and every other country had the sovereign right to do as they pleased until they got to a certain level of development, and that their people's welfare was, uh, was paramount, the paramount concern. And in the November 2014 uh, Sino-U.S. climate agreement, uh, President Xi Jinping uh, committed that China would see its carbon emissions peak around 2030. That was the first time that we ever had that commitment from a Chinese leader or any sort of official commitment of that sort from China. So that's huge news. Uh, I think what... Um, in fact, is going to happen is that uh, China is going to peak substantially sooner. I would I would guess uh, by twenty twenty
0: three, twenty twenty five. And there's some evidence it may have peaked last year.
1: Well, it seems that coal coal burning, coal use may have already peaked. Uh, the last two years, we've actually seen modest declines. Um, that's not the same as uh, overall emissions peaks. Uh, so there are there. You're right. The, there the
0: was a story yesterday yeah. that the suggestion was emissions made emissions, think, because of
1: a slowing economy
0: yeah. and what you talked about before, yeah. the, the switch to renewables. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so, I mean, this is huge news. So you think 18 months ago, we were all staggered. And I know policymakers in Hong Kong and people who follow this very closely – who were delighted to hear that 2030 was a target. Now we're talking about five, ten years, maybe even, even more rapidly than that. So we're talking every year gigatons of carbon that we had expected in the, all the modeling, all the climate modeling would be going into the atmosphere are not going to be going into the atmosphere. So what this means uh, is that China, which is the, by far the largest greenhouse gas emitter, by far the largest carbon emitter, responsible to, for roughly 30% of global emissions, if it peaks five or ten years earlier, then we actually really do have a chance of of uh, remaining within this this two degree rise in average global temperatures that um, the UN and other international uh, bodies are, are aiming for. So I, I just can't overstate the importance of of this this sort of early bending of the arc of history and and cutting these emissions because, as you said, the last two years are the first time absent a recession that we have ever seen globally since this has been tracked, emissions are actually stagnating and it's, as you say, China is the key and it's partly because of a slowing economy, of course, and that's why it's difficult to really untangle all the data, Uh, but so much of it has to do with with a move away from coal and a move towards more renewables.
0: Mm-hmm. And how are they accomplishing it? without, again, what I asked, earlier, without putting a price on carbon, how are they accomplishing
1: Well, it's a, it's a mixture of the carrot and the stick. So um, there, are, there are carrots in the form of feed-in tariffs. So uh, producers of solar and wind power are given um, small subsidies to make up for the fact that their costs are a bit higher than coal in China. And uh, it's part of the five-year plan. So, I mean, there are goals and there are incentives to... Um, to To use more green power, more renewable power. There's also priority that's being given, or allegedly, at least on paper and in policy, priority priority that's being given to the dispatch of green power because one of the great challenges of china is although it has a massive installed base of of wind and solar the largest in the world in both cases a lot of that power isn't being actually used it's either not (coughs) hooked up to the grid or uh or it's not being dispatched and so um i think it's a mixture again it's a mixture of a carrot and a stick and it reflects uh china's uh Economy, which is a a mixture of a planned and a market economy. Mm -hmm.
0: What about the auto industry? And, you know, you cannot go to China anymore and not sit in traffic, whether it's Beijing, Shenzhen, Shanghai, Guangzhou.
1: Yeah, interesting uh, question because uh, China has put a lot of money and a lot of effort into – uh, boosting the development of the electric vehicle industry. Um, to date, it has underperformed. It's an unusual ca- – <coughs> this is an unusual case where China has not met its targets. Um, I've just been at a, a conference here the last couple of days, and uh, it seems that um, electric vehicle sales, of course, in the U.S., but also in China, are actually – if not hitting an inflection point, certainly uh, accelerating. I think there's a great expectation that. Um,
0: Haven't there been three hundred thousand pre-orders for this new Tesla? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And which I think is a uh, meaningful uh, number. It's a meaningful what's number. Already on the road. Yes, it's very small. All, exactly. Volkswagen sells that many cars every ten days. Uh, you know, all, all year round, every year. Uh, on the other hand, China has um, some of the um, most substantial electric vehicle sales in the world, and they're expected. It's expected to be the largest EV market. Uh, pretty. soon. Soon. And, uh,
0: what are they now?
1: Uh, I don't know. So um, yeah, so we have companies like BYD, which Warren Buffett has invested in, but we have a slew of other uh, lesser-known companies which um, uh, have um, you know been trying to get into the EV market. And it's too early to say, but given the success in other areas, uh, and given China's uh, prowess as an automaker, um, I don't think it would be any surprise for us to you know see really significant jumps. Uh, We're talking about in the order of a few tens or a few hundreds of thousands of of EVs right now. I should also add that one of the real difficulties that electric vehicle um, or car makers face is just difficulty in selling into other provinces. So you have the kind of protectionist barriers with cars that you don't have in every industry. And that has been one of the, seems to have been one of the biggest barriers for companies like BYD.
0: Yeah. Interestingly, it seems that in terms of transportation, whether especially buses, one would argue that the municipal governments, the provincial governments have the ability to almost get rid of all kind of fossil fuel, yeah. um, you know, transportation and just say, okay, starting on January 1st, we're going to end, yeah. you know gasoline buses or diesel buses and move to natural gas buses. Yes. Is that happening? Well,
1: I think it's happening in some areas. So for example, Shenzhen where BYD is based has moved uh in, particularly taxi fleets into some degrees with with buses. Buses are a little more difficult, but uh there are battery powered buses. Um and so that happens, it seems to happen uh at least anecdotally where you have a strong EV manufacturer that the municipality will will go for right. electric vehicles. just um, yeah, if you've got a if you've got a, a you know, uh, petrol-fired vehicle maker, then the municipality is not likely to do it. But I think the local, uh, sorry, the national government is getting more serious about uh, trying to go to uh, a more electric uh, vehicle fleet because you look at the national security implications of China and the imports of oil to to fuel all these cars, and it's not something that the leadership is particularly comfortable with, and I I don't think they should be. So China is now the largest energy importer in the world.
0: Yeah. So, we had with us this afternoon, Mark Clifford. Uh, You have heard a touching on the book, The Greening of Asia. But if you're interested in kind of the business case for solving Asia's environmental crisis, um, get the book. And Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure.